Man, let me tell you what happened. Two weeks ago, I released the episode on Colin Baker, and I felt great. Went to sleep, and I woke up feeling not so great. Headache, body aches, chills, fever. I had my suspicions, you know, that little bug that's been going around for the past couple of years that I've thus far eluded. Sure enough, I take a test, and it's positive. Now I got a quarantine. Okay, fine. Well, life gives you lemons, right? Why not take advantage of this time stuck at home to work on the podcast? Five whole days? What? Oh, yeah, I can really get ahead of the curve, really make some things happen. And my intention was to release an episode on the great Wild Bill Hickok today. So for five days and for five nights, I literally lived and breathed Wild Bill Hickok. And not to bore you with too much inside baseball, but when I record, I read off of a, for lack of better words, a script that I write. It's the only way I can remember everything I want to say. I know a lot of podcasters just use like bullet points. I can't do that. I'll forget too much. And what I do remember will just all get scrambled. Anyway, as I'm researching Hickok, I write out this 32 page script. That's a lot of words, homeboy, and a lot of work. I then recorded the episode. I usually record in just one sitting. It went off without a hitch. Uh, I think I had like two hours worth of audio, which means it was going to be a long episode. And then I immediately began editing. At least I did until my laptop died. Like, really died. As in a certain 11-month-old little girl decided to bounce it on the ground. But Josh, no big deal. You have everything backed up on the cloud, so you should be good to go, right? <laughs> Negative. It's all gone. The recording, the script, all my notes. Uh, I do have somebody working on it to see if anything can be extracted from the hard drive. But I'm not holding my breath. The first guy quoted me at $1,400, by the way. No, thank you. Uh, now, this was fully my fault. I should have placed the laptop where a curious baby could get a hold of it, and I should have backed everything up. That's all on me. And this is my long-winded way of saying, unfortunately, there will be no Wild Bill Hickok episode this week. Soon, just not this week. But don't you worry, your pretty little head none. I'm leaving you in the very capable hands of Lindsey Graham. And no, not that Lindsey Graham. Guy I'm talking about is the award-winning podcaster. You may know him from the excellent audio drama, 1865. That's how I first discovered Lindsay. Turns out the man's been at this game for quite a while. American History Tellers, American Scandal, American Elections, Wicked Game, Dirty John, Dr. Death, Business Wars, and on and on. This dude knows how to make a good podcast, and he most definitely knows his history, as is evidenced by my personal favorite work of his, History Daily. If you're not familiar at History Daily, a co-production from Airship and Noiser, they do history daily, every dang weekday. Lindsey Graham takes you back in time to explore a momentous event that happened on this day in history. Whether it's to remember the tragedy of December 7th, 1941, the day that will live in infamy, or to celebrate that 20th day in July, 1969, when mankind reached the moon, or of course, important events from the Old West. History Daily is there to tell you the true stories of the people and events that shaped our world one day at a time. So if you're stuck in traffic, bored at work, trimming your nose hairs, wherever you are, listen to History Daily to remind yourself that something incredible happened to make that day historic. And it is my great honor to present to you today a History Daily double feature. The first story is centered around a guy named Jesse James. Maybe you've heard of him. And we're going to follow that one up by taking a look at a mischievous yet misunderstood young man down New Mexico way they called Billy the Kid. 
If you like true tales from the wild and woolly west, then you're definitely going to want to stick around for about the next 30 minutes or so. And then when you're done, check out History Daily wherever you listen at podcasts. As for me, I will be talking to you soon. A lot of exciting things coming up. Wild Bill will be coming up very soon. But for today, without further ado, ladies and gentlemen, the great Lindsey Graham. It's a cold afternoon on January 15th, 1874. A stagecoach driver grips the reins and guides his horses along a route from Malvern to Hot Springs, Arkansas. It's a long 20 mile journey, and so far it's been uneventful. The driver is grateful for that, and so are his passengers. One of them is a man named G.R. Crump, a former Confederate soldier. The U.S. Civil War between the North and South has been over for nearly a decade. But now the country faces another crisis, an economic depression. Hundreds of banks have closed and countless Americans are out of work. So Crump is grateful to be employed at all, working as a representative of a cigar and tobacco company. Most of the other passengers are asleep, but Crump's eyes are wide open. He knows trips like these are dangerous, and he won't rest easy till he reaches his destination. Just then, the driver pulls up on the reins and the coach comes to a sudden stop. Crump nearly falls out of his seat as the rest of his passengers wake with a start. There's a commotion outside. When Crump lifts the window curtain to have a look, a bandit points a revolver in his face. The highwayman wears a long blue coat, with his hat pulled down low over his eyes and his face covered with a handkerchief. The masked man orders Crump and the other passengers to get out of the coach with their hands in the air. When Crump steps outside, there are four more bandits waiting. They order the passengers to hand over all their valuables. Crump's hands tremble as he gives them his wallet and watch. The bandits then rummage through the interior of the coach, where they find a package belonging to a shipping outfit called the Southern Express Company. Inside are stacks of cash. After the loot is secure, one of the bandits steps forward and says, if there is anyone here who has served the Confederacy, you'll get his possessions returned. Nervous, Crump raises his hand and says, I was a Confederate. After Crump gives his name and rank, the bandit immediately hands his belongings back. We don't rob Southern veterans, he explains. Northern men drove us to outlawry, and we intend to make them pay for it. With that, the bandits mount their horses and ride off to the wooded hills with as much as $2,000, the equivalent of nearly $50,000 today. After arriving in Hot Springs, Crump and the other passengers relay what happened to townsfolk who quickly form a posse and ride out after the criminals but they will never find them, and their identities will never be confirmed. Still, many think they already know who's responsible. The James Younger Gang and its notorious leader, outlaw Jesse James. And soon, Jesse will build upon his already growing legend when he and his gang commit one of the most infamous crimes in the history of the American Old West on January 31st, 1874. From Noiser and Airship, I'm Lindsey Graham, and this is History Daily. History is made every day. On this podcast, every day, we tell the true stories of the people and events that shaped our world. Today is January 31st, Jesse James pulls off the Gads Hill train robbery. 
It's January 15, 1874, moments after the Hot Springs stagecoach heist. As Jesse James and his gang flee the scene, their immediate goal is to get as far away as they can, as fast as they can. Jesse leads his gang off the main road and north into the woods bound for Missouri. Jesse is no stranger to the life of an outlaw. At the age of just 17, he left his home in Missouri to fight as a Confederate in the Civil War. After the South lost the conflict, he came back home to Missouri, where he helped found one of the most notorious gangs in the American Old West. The James Younger Gang is mostly made up of former Confederate soldiers, men like Frank James, Jesse's older brother, and Cole Younger, and several of his brothers. In the years that followed, Jesse and his gang committed multiple crimes, but they didn't gain much notoriety until about five years ago, in December of 1869, when Jesse robbed a bank in Missouri and shot and killed the cashier. The news of that murder was the first time Jesse's name appeared in the papers. Since then, Jesse's crime spree has continued, mainly with more bank heists. But recently, Jesse and his gang have been trying their hand at stagecoach robberies, like the one they just pulled off. In the two weeks after the Hot Springs heist, Jesse and his gang continue their long journey north and eventually cross state lines back into Missouri. On the afternoon of January 30th, they arrive in the small lumber town of Mill Spring to rest and purchase supplies. While there, they visit McFadden's, a notorious gambling joint filled with shady and violent characters. But Jesse and his gang keep a low profile and stay out of trouble. They've traveled nearly 300 miles since the stagecoach robbery. Jesse doesn't want to risk a run-in with the law now, not when they're so close to their final destination. Jesse and his gang are headed for a little hamlet called Gads Hill, Missouri. It's a small place of no account in the wooded Ozark wilderness of southeastern Missouri. There's little there but a few houses, a general store, and an old abandoned sawmill. But Jesse is headed to Gads Hill because it's also home to a small railroad platform where Jesse plans to stage yet another heist. But they're not there yet. Back in McFadden's, Jesse and the gang keep their heads down. They finish their meal, purchase provisions, and ride out of town. They continue north for another 10 miles or so before running out of daylight, so they decide to stop for the night at the home of a widow just outside Piedmont, Missouri. When the widow hears a knock at the door, she's surprised to see Jesse and his band of rugged, road-weary travelers standing on her porch. When Jesse asks if they can stay the night, she says yes against her better judgment. With Christian charity in her heart, she puts her fears aside and invites the men inside. When they remove their overcoats, though, she notices their revolvers and double-barreled shotguns. She's terrified, but doesn't ask questions. She gets them a hot meal and a warm bed, but she herself doesn't sleep much that night. But bright and early the next morning, Jesse and his gang are readying to go. Jesse pays the widow for her trouble, and the men gallop off towards Gad's Hill. This is not the only time Jesse has supposedly stopped for shelter at the home of a widow. On another occasion, Jesse and his gang were reported to have spent the night at a house in Tennessee. Over supper, Jesse noticed that the widow was distraught. When he asked her what was wrong, she broke down sobbing and told her that rent was due the next day. Her husband was dead. She didn't have the money to pay it. Her landlord was not a generous man, the woman explained, and she was certain he would evict her and her children. When Jesse asked her how much she owed, the woman told him $1,500, an enormous sum. But hearing this, Jesse fetched his money bag and gave the woman what she needed. After Jesse and his gang departed, they waited in the woods till the landlord came for the money, 
to make sure he didn't try to take advantage of her. It was stories like these that earned Jesse a reputation as a Robin Hood of the Wild West, a noble villain who robs from the rich and gives to the poor. But not everyone agrees with this characterization of the notorious outlaw. Many see him as just a bitter confederate who refuses to accept that the South lost the war, one who takes out his anger on honest, hardworking Americans. What is certain is that on the morning of January 31, 1874, as Jesse and his gang ride for Gad's Hill, Jesse isn't thinking about giving to the poor, just robbing the rich. His mind is fixed on the daring heist he's about to pull off, an infamous crime that will help make Jesse James a legend. It's January 31st, 1874, on a cold, quiet afternoon in Gads Hill, Missouri. Inside the local general store, a young 16-year-old boy named William Ferris warms his hands by the stove. He's waiting for his father to come to town on the Little Rock Express train, which is set to arrive this afternoon. Gads Hill is home to only a dozen or so people. A few of the men of the town chat with Billy at the general store. Their wives are at home while their children, bundled up, play in the streets. At around 3 o'clock, one of the children looks up to find five men on horseback riding into town. They're wearing white hoods over their heads, with holes cut out for their mouths and eyes. The children run away in terror, and quickly, the bandits descend on the general store. When they bust inside with guns drawn, Billy and the townsmen put their hands in the air. The bandits take the shopkeeper's rifle and as much as $800 in cash. Next, they round up the boy Billy, the shopkeeper, and the rest of the townspeople, including the women and children, and corral them near the train platform. There, the bandits order the men to build a bonfire to keep everyone warm while they wait for the train to arrive. At a little before 5 p.m., the Little Rock Express, a small steam locomotive, closes in on Gad's Hill, guided by its conductor, Mr. Chauncey Alford. Under Chauncey's charge is a dozen crew members and roughly 25 passengers. In the distance, Chauncey sees a man standing on the tracks holding a red flag, and he knows exactly what that means, danger ahead. So Chauncey hits the brakes, bringing the train to a slow crawl before it eventually stops. As Chauncey hops off the train, he notices the man on the tracks is wearing a white hood. Before he can react, four other hooded bandits appear with guns drawn. One of them grabs Chauncey by the collar, points a revolver in his face, and barks, stand still or I'll blow the top of your head off. Crew members and concerned passengers alike poke their heads out of windows to see what's going on. The lead bandit shouts, if a shot is fired out of the train, I will kill the conductor. Immediately, the other bandits spring into action. They round up conductor and crew and lead them to the train platform. One bandit stands nearby guarding them. The remaining two hop on board. Before making it to the passenger cars in the rear, the bandits find a locked safe guarded by a young man who works for a shipping company. One of the bandits points a shotgun at his chest and says, Give me your pistol, you son of a bitch. Without blinking, the young man hands over his revolver and the key to the safe. Inside, the bandits find just over $1,000. Next, the bandits make their way to the passenger cars. The bandit leader calls out to the riders, Is there anyone on this train named Pinkerton? He's referring to the famous detective, Alan Pinkerton. Back during the Civil War, President Abraham Lincoln hired Pinkerton to run a network of Union spies. After the South surrendered, Pinkerton started his own private detective force 
the Pinkerton National Detective Agency. But the leader knows Alan Pinkerton is not on board the train. He's making a joke. But for outlaws like him, Alan Pinkerton is no laughing matter. The Pinkerton National Detective Agency has put an end to many an outlaw's career. There's no doubt this bandit, given the chance, would shoot Pinkerton dead. The bandits make orderly work going up and down the train's aisles, looting each passenger. They gather purses, wallets, watches, anything of value at all. Then, the bandits return to the train platform where the train's crew is being held at gunpoint. They take everything from them as well, including the conductor Chauncey, who's forced to hand over $50 and a gold watch. Then the bandits climb on their horses and ride off into the sunset. By some accounts, the bandits' total take is as much as $12,000, nearly $300,000 today. No one was hurt and no shots were fired. Conductor Chauncey Alford fires up the Little Rock Express and gets the passengers to their destination without further incident. As Jesse and his gang escaped north on horseback, they took off their white hoods. But it's unclear why they even needed them. Back at the train, Jesse James clearly wanted this robbery to be known as his handiwork. Before leaving, he handed one of the passengers a pre-written press release that would later appear in newspapers across the region. The press release was titled, The Most Daring Robbery on Record. The Gads Hill robbery was indeed daring and will attract attention, but not just from the media. Alan Pinkerton will learn about Jesse James' criminal activities too, and he'll put his Pinkerton detective agency on the case. Later writing, I hear that the Jameses and Youngers are desperate men, and that when we meet, it must be the death of one or both of us. There's no use talking. They must die. It's a cold January evening, about one year after the Gads Hill train robbery. Around midnight, agents of the Pinkerton Detective Agency swarm around a farmhouse in Clay County, Missouri. This is the place that Jesse and Frank grew up, and these agents have reason to believe the infamous outlaws are inside. Ever since the Gads Hill train robbery, Alan Pinkerton has been hot on Jesse's trail. In the months that followed, a series of violent encounters left one of Jesse's gang members, John Younger, dead. It left more than a few Pinkerton detectives killed as well. As a result, Alan Pinkerton vowed vengeance on Jesse, and now these agents are here to extract their boss's revenge. Carefully, one of the detectives approaches the farmhouse and throws a firebomb inside. Within minutes, the house is ablaze. Jesse and Frank are not home as the detectives hope, but other members of the James family are. Jesse's nine-year-old half-brother will die in the fire. His mother will survive, but her arm will be so badly injured in the fire, it will need amputation. News of the death of the boy and injury to Jesse's mother spreads, growing popular sympathy for Jesse James and his gang, burnishing his Robin Hood reputation and making villains out of the Pinkertons. But there is no doubt why many law enforcement officials wanted to see Jesse and his gang behind bars. By some estimates, over the course of their 15-year crime spree, the James Younger gang will steal over $200,000, nearly $4.9 today. They will kill at least 17 men. In the end, Jesse will pay for his crimes, but not at the hands of Alan Pinkerton. In April 1882, Jesse will be shot in the back by Robert Ford, a fellow gang member who betrayed him for reward money. 
the first train heist in the state of Missouri, was one of Jesse James' most infamous crimes. It added to his fame and fortune just as he intended. But the heist, which took place on January 31, 1874, also set in motion a bloody chain of events that would lead to his downfall. Next on History Daily, February 1, 2009, Icelandic politician Johanna Sigurdardóttir is sworn in as the country's prime minister, becoming the first woman to hold that post in Iceland and the world's first openly gay head of government. From Noiser and Airship, this is History Daily, hosted, edited, and executive produced by me, Lindsey Graham. Audio editing by Molly Bach. Sound design by Misha Stanton. Music by Lindsey Graham. This episode is written and researched by Stephen Walters. Executive producers are Stephen Walters for Airship and Pascal Hughes for Noiser. It's February 18, 1878, on a ranch in Lincoln County in New Mexico Territory. John Tunstall, an English-born ranch owner, rides out with several of his ranch hands. Among them is a grinning young man named William H. Bonney. On a hilltop not far from the ranch, William and the other boys bring their horses to a stop. William points to a flock of wild turkeys gathered nearby. He turns to John and grins, silently asking for permission. And John nods. John stays behind as William and the rest of his ranch hands ride off in the direction of the turkeys, causing the birds to scatter far and wide. The ranch hands split up and chase after the fleeing fowl. William laughs wildly as he dismounts his horse and runs the turkeys down on foot. But about that time, William sees something in the distance. A posse of armed men on horseback, heading straight for John. William knows these men. They're dangerous criminals. So he yells for John to run. But John's too far away to hear William's warning. Instead, John rides out to greet his guests, and one of the armed men suddenly raises a rifle. John tumbles off his horse, and William runs for cover behind a tree. He peeks back around to see another posse member pull John's own pistol from its holster and point it at John's head. William's eyes flash red with fury, but just as he's about to charge the posse with his guns drawn, he hears a familiar voice calling out to him. It's Dick Brewer, John's ranch foreman. Dick urges William to be smart, to live and fight another day. So William rides off with Dick and the rest of John's ranch hands, determined to seek revenge on the men who killed his boss and friend. Since the mid-1870s, two factions have been vying for dominance in Lincoln County. On one side was John Tunstall. On the other two cutthroat businessmen named Lawrence Murphy and James Dolan. For a time, the Murphy-Dolan faction, as their outfit is called, controlled everything. The local saloon, the general store, the town bank, even local law enforcement. They used the power they amassed to charge exorbitant prices on goods and high interest rates on loans. They held a true monopoly over Lincoln County until John Tunstall came along and opened up several competing businesses. Needless to say, Dolan and Murphy weren't pleased with the presence of their new rival, so they decided to eliminate the competition. The murder of John Tunstall would give rise to what is known as the Lincoln County Wars. In the midst of this violent conflict, that young, grinning ranch hand, William Bonney, would go on a quest for revenge. His actions will transform him into a legend and land him behind bars. There, the myth of Billy the Kid will be seared into the ages when the ranch hand turned gunfighter avoids the hangman's noose 
and makes a daring escape from the Lincoln County Jail on April 28, 1881. From Noiser and Airship, I'm Lindsey Graham, and this is History Daily. History is made every day. On this podcast, every day, we tell the true stories of the people and events that shaped our world. Today is April 28th, Billy the Kid Escapes. It's March 1878, weeks after John Tunstall's murder. Inside the Lincoln County Courthouse, several of John's ranch hands are gathered, including Billy the Kid and John's former foreman, Dick Brewer. They stand in front of a local justice of the peace, but they're not here because they're in trouble. They're here to be deputized. After the murder of John Tunstall, it was clear none of the men responsible would be brought to justice. In no small part because the posse that killed John was organized by the highest-ranking law enforcement officer in Lincoln, Sheriff William Brady, one of the many local officials who was on the payroll of Lawrence Murphy and James Dolan. Dick, Billy, and the others were furious, and they were desperate to find a legal means to bring down the men who killed John. They approached one of the few honest officials in Lincoln County, the local justice of the peace. He was a friend of John Tunstall and agreed to use his power to deputize the group. As special constables, they'll have legal authority to take the fight to the Murphy-Dolan faction, and they won't have to answer to the corrupt and compromised sheriff, William Brady. Today, in the courthouse, Billy grins as the justice of the peace pins a deputy's badge to his vest. When the ceremony ends, the boys leave the courthouse with the power of the law behind them. Dick Brewer takes charge of the group, which he calls the Regulators. Almost immediately, the Regulators get to work. Within days, they find their first prey. Near the Rio Penasco in New Mexico, they track down and capture three men connected to the murder of John Tunstall. Dick and Billy debate what to do with their captives. As newly deputized lawmen, they know they should bring the men to Lincoln County for trial. But Dick and Billy fear that if they take their prisoners to town, corrupt Sheriff William Brady will simply let them go so Dick and Billy consider taking matters into their own hands. Three days later, when the regulators arrive back in Lincoln, their captives aren't with them. The regulators claim their prisoners were killed on the road while trying to escape, but it's widely believed the regulators murdered them. But before Dick and Billy can choose their next target, they're greeted with devastating news. While they were hunting down members of the Murphy-Dolan faction, the territorial governor of New Mexico came to Lincoln for a visit. Accompanied by James Dolan, the governor took a brief tour of the town. By the time he left, the governor had removed the local justice of the peace and revoked his latest deputizations. Sheriff Brady made it known that the so-called regulators were nothing more than outlaws. And hearing this news, Billy, Dick, and the others quickly flee Lincoln to avoid arrest and plot their next moves. To Billy, it's obvious what needs to be done. Kill Sheriff Brady. So before dawn on April 1st, 1878, Billy leads five other regulators back into Lincoln. Under the cover of darkness, they take up a position behind an adobe wall. Armed with Winchester rifles, they bide their time and wait for the perfect opportunity to strike. That moment comes around 9 a.m. when Billy sees Sheriff Brady and his deputy leave the courthouse and start walking down the street toward them. From their position behind the wall, 
the Regulators fire their rifles in near unison. Brady is hit at least a dozen times before he falls to the ground. He dies face down in the mud along with his deputy. Billy and the Regulators ride out of Lincoln, having sent a clear message. No one is safe from their wrath, not even high-ranking lawmen. The slaying of the sheriff makes the Regulators infamous overnight, and the people of Lincoln County are torn. Some believe the violent young men must be stopped at all costs, while others see them as heroes taking on corruption. But the remaining members of the Murphy-Dolan faction are not conflicted at all in their opinions of the Regulators. A few days later, on April 4th, Billy, Dick, and a group of Regulators are having dinner at a restaurant near the Blazers Mill trading post. Their meal is interrupted when they see a familiar face approaching. Buckshot Roberts, a known member of the Murphy-Dolan outfit. The Regulators leave their meal and approach Roberts. He sees them coming and draws his revolver. A fierce gunfight ensues, and when the smoke clears, Roberts is mortally wounded. Several of the Regulators are also hit, including Billy the Kid. But Dick Brewer, their leader, is dead, shot through the eye. The gunfight at Blazer's Mill, as this incident will come to be known, is over. But the Lincoln County War is just beginning. In the wake of Dick Brewer's death, Billy the Kid will emerge as the Regulator's new captain. But Billy's thirst for revenge will soon bring him face to face with a lawman who will ultimately take his life. It's December 23, 1880, in an abandoned, snow-covered house in Stinking Springs, New Mexico. Billy the Kid crouches against a wall, shivering, hungry, and clutching his pistols. Billy knows lawmen have the house surrounded, and he feels like a caged animal. Billy tells the four regulators with him that they're going to have to make a run for it, and fast. Since the death of Dick Brewer, Billy has led the regulators across New Mexico, killing Murphy and Dolan's henchmen along the way. Billy's infamy has been growing along with the body count. He's become the subject of dime store novels and countless newspaper articles. Billy's fame has made him the most wanted man in the West. And now Pat Garrett, the brand new sheriff of Lincoln County, has tracked Billy down. Billy tells one of the regulators, Charles Beaudry, to make a run for the horses, which are tethered outside. Billy says if they can get on horseback, they might be able to escape. But as Charlie walks out the door, Pat Garrett's men open fire. Covered in blood, Charlie stumbles back into the house. Billy is gutted. He and Charlie are more than partners in crime. They're good friends. But that doesn't stop Billy from seizing Charlie and using him as a human shield. As Billy rushes outside, the lawmen fire at will. But with Charlie in front of him, Billy remains untouched until Charlie's lifeless body slips through his fingers and falls to the ground. Suddenly exposed and vulnerable, Billy retreats back inside. After several hours of trading insults with Sheriff Pat Garrett, Billy finally accepts that there's no way out. With no other choice, Billy surrenders. The following day, Christmas Eve, Pat Garrett is already being lauded as a hero. As he leads Billy through New Mexico to his impending trial, crowds gather to lay eyes on the infamous duo. Rumors circulate that the sheriff and the kid know each other well. And it's true that Billy and Pat have crossed paths over the years. But future stories that paint them as best friends are likely more myth than fact. Still, Billy and Pat do enjoy each other's company and the attention they garner as they travel across the territory. But then on April 9th, 1881, 
the circus comes to an end when Billy stands trial in Mesilla, New Mexico for the murder of Lincoln County Sheriff William Brady. Billy worries the outcome has already been decided. As the proceedings get underway, it's clear no one is interested in a fair trial. After brief witness testimonies and an even briefer deliberation, Billy is found guilty of murder. Days after his conviction, Billy returns to court for sentencing. The judge orders that William Bonney, alias Kidd, be hanged by the neck until his body be dead. The judge also declares that the execution will take place in the same location as the crime. So soon, Pat takes Billy back to Lincoln, where his execution is set to take place on May 13th. But that's a few days away, and the government fears Billy's regulators might stage a rescue attempt. So for added protection, Billy is shackled and loaded into a wagon, where he's accompanied by a deputy United States Marshal and six other heavily armed lawmen. After he arrives in Lincoln County, Billy is immediately taken to the courthouse jail. There, Billy is handcuffed and shackled in a small room on the top floor, far away from other prisoners. Billy's situation looks hopeless, but he has no intention of going down without a fight. From the moment he arrived in Lincoln, Billy has been plotting his escape. While incarcerated, Billy studies the routines with the two guards who've been assigned to watch him, James and Bob. Billy has no love for his duo of captors, especially the brutish Bob, who spends the bulk of his time verbally abusing Billy. But Billy knows the torment he's currently enduring is only temporary. Before long, Billy realizes that at 5 p.m. every day, Bob leads the rest of the prisoners across the street to eat their dinner at a hotel. Billy is left alone with James to eat in the courthouse. And soon, Billy discovers that a 10-gauge shotgun is stored nearby in Pat Garrett's office. In late April, with his execution date rapidly approaching, Billy is ready. All he has to do now is wait for the perfect moment and put his plan in motion. It's just before 5 p.m. on April 28th, 1881 at the Lincoln County Courthouse Jail in New Mexico. As he sits in his room shackled, Billy's face is blank, but his mind is racing. He knows Pat Garrett has left Lincoln for the day. It's the perfect opportunity to make his escape. So at 5 p.m. sharp, when Bob leads the other prisoners across the street for their meal, Billy tells James he needs to go out back to use the outhouse. Annoyed, James leads Billy down the stairs and outside. After a short while, Billy emerges from the outhouse. Still irritated, James ushers him back into the courthouse and then leads him up the stairs to his room. James has no idea that Billy is now concealing a gun. It's unclear if someone stashed the weapon inside the outhouse for Billy or if he procured it by some other means. But this much is clear. At the top of the stairs, Billy hits James in the head with his handcuffs. The stunned guard tries to flee down the steps to safety, but Billy draws and fires. Bleeding badly, James stumbles outside screaming for help. Billy somehow manages to slip his handcuffs. He runs into Pat Garrett's office and grabs the 10-gauge shotgun he knows is kept there. He opens a second-story window and sees the other mouthy guard, Bob, running across the street from the hotel. Billy decides it's time to pay him back for all that verbal abuse. He leans out the window and allegedly calls out, Hello, Bob, before firing the shotgun. Bob dies in a heap on the ground. Soon, Billy sees a crowd gathering on the street below. He calls out to them, saying he doesn't want to kill anyone else, but that he will if they stand in his way. He hollers down to a man he knows in the crowd, 
tells him to saddle a horse. And when it's ready, Billy dashes outside, mounts up, and rides fast out of Lincoln. After his escape, Billy is on the run for over two months with Pat Garrett in hot pursuit. But finally, on July 14, 1881, Pat catches up with Billy in Fort Sumner, New Mexico, and shoots the kid dead. William H. Bonney, also known as Billy the Kid, will fascinate the American public in death even more than he did in life. He will be the subject of countless novels and news articles, and eventually, his story will find its way to radio, television, and over 50 different films. The truth behind Billy the Kid, like other outlaw tales of the Old West, lives in the space between legend and lies. Some will argue that the kid did not really die in the summer of 1881. In the late 1940s, an old man calling himself Brushy Bill Roberts will tell the world that he is none other than William H. Bonney, but the authenticity of his claims will never be confirmed. Part myth, part man, Billy the Kid continues to fuel the imagination. For some, he's a cold-blooded killer. For others, he's a hero who lived on his own terms and pulled off death-defying feats, like the escape he made from the Lincoln County Courthouse Jail on April 28, 1881. Next on History Daily, April 29, 1992, a jury acquits four police officers in the beating of Rodney King, sparking six days of violence and unrest in Los Angeles. From Noiser and Airship, this is History Daily, hosted, edited, and executive produced by me, Lindsey Graham. Audio editing and sound design by Molly Bach. Music by Lindsey Graham. This episode is written and researched by Michael Federico. Executive producers are Stephen Walters for Airship and Pascal Hughes for Noiser.